what it means to have biblical confidence. What does it mean to have biblical confidence? We continue our summer in the Psalm series. Um, by the way, uh, you know, the Psalms should be a regular part of your diet, your spiritual diet as a Christian. Um, if you think about it, the Psalms are probably the most quoted uh, group of texts in all the New Testament. Um, that in the book of Isaiah, and of course, uh, the book of Genesis in some degree, shape, or form. But it's the Psalms that fed the saints of old, the apostles, and the early church. And so I encourage you to, to let the Psalms be a part of your daily diet as a Christian. Up to this point, we've looked at Psalm 23 that talks about God's sovereignty. We've looked at Psalm 100 that talks about the worship of God. We looked at Psalm 14 that's a part of the wisdom literature of the psalm. And so today we're going to look at a slightly different psalm, Psalm 27, that I think is just powerful in helping us understand um, what it means to have biblical confidence. Uh, just one more word of note, um, me and my family are starting vacation next week for just one week. Um, so, uh, so just be in prayer for us. Uh, Elder Albert um, Levingood will be our, the elder on call. So if, the, if, the, you know, if everything's burning down, call him, uh, is what I tell people. Um, but, uh, you know, I will be no more than four and a half hours away, and so if there is uh, something critical, uh, fear not, I will be back. Um, but I, I leave it in um, Elder Alberts and, all, of course, all the elders, uh, their good hands as well. Um, so I say all that to say pray for our travels. Um, this is the first time I've been um, out of the area in over six months or five months or so. So, you know, driving on, on the, the mean highways out there. Well, of course, it can't be any worse than, what is it, I-75 around here? I mean, my goodness, you know, you take your life in your own hands when you drive I-75 around here. I mean, I, every time I travel somewhere, I look and see how can I not go on to I-75 because I don't want to die in a fiery crash. But, um, but there are certain, certain places you just can't go without going on to I-75, as I've found out. And so uh, pray for us for safety and travel there. All right, let's look at the Psalm, Psalm 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord. When I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. 
Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Verse number 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If you look in other translations like the KJV, it actually says, I had fainted unless I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I think both are acceptable because it draws to the fact that unless you and I see the goodness of the Lord, our faith will be in vain. And then notice how it ends, this glorious uh, recognition of God's sovereignty in our life. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let us go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you indeed. This is your word. And now teach your people based on this word. Father, encourage our hearts. Lift up our hearts. Help us, O oh Lord. Father, bless. Help us to have confidence in you and you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, psalm 27 is actually known as a psalm of confidence because when you read it, that's exactly what you feel. You feel the sense of confidence. You're, you're inspired to faith. You feel this courage and this steadfastness that comes with reading such a psalm. You feel built up. You know, you sort of feel alive after you read Psalm 27, even though it has a portion of lament. You kind of feel alive. It, it reminds me of, as a little kid, anybody remember Mike Tyson? Uh, you know, Mike Tyson was a famous boxer, and, and when Mike Tyson was coming up to the ring, he had a hype man, you know, and it was a guy that would stand on the side of him and just yell at him, like, you're the greatest, Mike, you're, you're the best, you're going to knock this guy out, and that's, that's all the guy did. He was on his team to be the hype man for Mike Tyson. Well, um, this is like our hype man uh, psalm, right? We read it and we feel excited. We read it and we, we feel passionate um, to serve the Lord. There's great comfort to be found in this psalm. But this psalm also produces a great challenge. If you think about it, it produces a great challenge. And the great challenge that this psalm represents is that this psalm calls us to complete confidence in God that's completely disconnected from our experience. And you say, Pastor, well, what do you mean it's completely disconnected from our experience? Well, think about it. When you have a psalm of praise, that psalm of praise is always in response to the fact that things are going well. We praise God because things are going well, and so we give a psalm of praise. Or when God delivers us from all of our sins, we, we, we sort of give this, uh, there are psalms of thanksgiving that comes in response to that. 
And then in a psalm of lament, we lament in the midst of heartache and pain. So, so all the psalms are connected with our experience, but not so with the psalm of confidence. It's completely different. Because a psalm of confidence is asking us to express confidence in God in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering. And in this case, it's completely disconnected from our experience. Notice what David says in verse 2 and verse 3. David says, When evil assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foe, it is they who stumble and fall. Verse number three, though an army encamps against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Listen to what David is saying. He's saying that, listen, I will have confidence even though I am in the midst of strife, even though there are armies that are against me. And there's war that's about to overtake me. There's an army encamped against me. Evildoers are seeking to assail me. Regardless of all of this, David is saying, I will have confidence in the Lord. Let me tell you, that's not consistent with our natural response to, to things going on in our life. It, it's actually completely different. Recently, I was, um, I was reading an article, and you could even see this on the news if you watch the news. By the way, let's pause for a moment. Um, take a Sabbath from the news. I mean, if, if, you, if you're really concerned about your mental health, like, take a day where you don't look at the news. Because I promise you, like, I just any time I look at the news, my heart drops, right? So if you want to take, like, a mental Sabbath from what's going on, please just, just turn off the news, and I promise you, you'll feel your happiness and your mental health get so much better. That's a digression, but here's what I have to say, Right? In, in our day and age, um, I was reading an article recently where they said that the public confidence has never been lower in our institutions, right? Public confidence has never been lower. People have no confidence in um, the political sphere. They have no confidence in the police. They have no confidence in our elected official. All of that is down. And as I read through the article, I realized why, why are people's public confidence down in almost every aspect of institution? Why is that the case? Well, the reason why that's the case is because of what's going on in our world, right? We're in the midst of a pandemic. Not only that, but there's uh, perceived police brutality. And not only that, there, there's massive division in our country. And when there's massive division in our country, when we're in the midst of a pandemic, guess what? The people don't have very much confidence in their elected officials. And so you see that the experience of what's going on around us has a great impact in the confidence we feel in the people who are in charge of us. And that's manifested in the things we say and do. That's our society. Poll after poll after poll that you look in shows that we have no confidence in our elected officials, no confidence in our institutions. Why? Because of what's going on. Now, conversely, when things are going great, what happens? Well, of course we have confidence in our elected officials because things are going great. Well, now you see the special, what's special about this psalm, what's great about this psalm, what's glorious about this psalm, because this psalm is saying this. Our confidence in God is independent of our experiences. And can I tell you that that's hard? It's hard to have confidence in God independent of our experiences. 
It's hard to be a Christian and be going through so much trials, testings, and tribulations and be like David and say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. In whom shall I be afraid? That's hard. But I want to show you today, and I want to take the next few moments to show us how there are four truths from this passage that help us not only gain confidence in God, but maintain it. Because the only way that you and I are going to maintain our faith and not be, uh, be overcome by grief and sadness and sorrow and become apathetic towards the things of God is that we have to maintain our confidence in God. We have to believe that God is working and doing something even though it is completely divorced from our experience. And here are the four things I want to share with you. Four truths, right? The first, where we start matters, but not for the reasons you think. Where you start matters, but not for the reasons you think. The second one is this, the problems are real, but not as real as you think. The third one is learn to replace a strong desire with an even stronger desire. And the fourth one is waiting on the Lord is the secret to building uh, confidence, building and having confidence in the Lord. So the first one is this, if we're going to maintain and have confidence in the Lord where you start matters, but not for the reasons that you think. Notice in this passage that David is in the midst of suffering and pain, that there are enemies and evildoers that are assailing him and going after him, and he is feeling the pressure from these enemies. And notice where David goes first, and this is remarkable for me. Because first of all, David didn't just sit down and pretend that his problems didn't exist. He didn't do that. David also didn't ask his family for help. You know, David had uh, six other brothers or seven other brothers that he could have asked for help, but he didn't. And David didn't start with himself. He was a brilliant military leader. That's not where David started. David started with the Lord. He asked the Lord for help. In verse number one, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? David started with the Lord. That's significant. You know, when I was a child, I think I was about four or five, I remember the first time I saw a 200-meter or 400-meter race. Right? And I remember it distinctly because I thought, this is so interesting to me because from my vantage point, it looked like the people that were on the outside lane had the advantage, right? Um, it looked like they were way ahead of everybody else. And to my surprise, when they came around the track, the person in, who, who, in my vision, was way ahead didn't win. And this was a huge disconnect for me. And, and after I watched race after race and I saw this happen, I just couldn't believe it. And finally, I went to my brother and I said, hey, what's going on? Why is it that the person all the way on the outside lane didn't win? And he said, oh, you don't understand. It's the, the, the outside lane is the longer, you know, that's a longer way around a track than compared to the inside lane. But I remember I couldn't reconcile that, that sort of disconnect in my mind because I figured if you're straight ahead, you should win. And I think the same disconnect happens to us when we think about going to the Lord first. You see, when we go to the Lord first, right, 
When we go to the Lord first, we are expecting God to give us some kind of tactic or some kind of relief from our situation. But that's not what David is doing. David isn't looking for a tactic. David is employing a grand strategy for his life. There's a complete difference between having a strategy and looking for tactics. Let me explain it this way. <clears throat> Let's just say you, you want to go to school or college to become an engineer. That's a grand strategy. The tactics would be if you go and take classes and do well, right? You go, you take classes, you study. All of these are tactics to help you do this one thing, which is go and be an engineer. Now, the difference is this. Imagine, and all of us know this, imagine if you just went to school and took a bunch of classes, right? But you had no idea what you want to be. And so you spend year after year in school taking a bunch of classes, but you don't have a grand strategy. You don't know what it is you're going to be. You don't know what it is you want to do. And so you take a bunch of classes in hopes that you'll figure it out. Now, let me ask you a question. Do people like that ever figure it out? No. Of course they don't, because they started with tactics. Now, what do you think happens if you go in knowing what you want to do? Well, what you're going to do, the grand strategy in which you're going to employ determines the tactics that you do, or the tactics that you employ. And beloved, the same thing is true in your Christian life. When you look at your problems and you just look for solutions, if you just look for life hacks and tactics to solve these problems, the Bible says that you, what you end up doing is, yes, you, you have all of these tactics to go and solve your problems, but you don't know why you're solving these problems. And in fact, you miss the most important aspect of this, and that is why, what God is trying to do in you and through you, which is to bring you into a place where you're putting your confidence in him. This is what David is doing. He's employing a grand strategy for living. And that's this, having confidence in the Lord. This is David's big strategy. He employed it in Psalm 51 when he said, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in, in your sight, O Lord. What's David doing there? Well, he's telling the Lord and he's explaining to the Lord that, Lord, it's you that ultimately I've sinned against, so it's you I ultimately have to repent against. So that's David's uh, grand strategy. Notice also the grand strategy of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right before they went into the fiery furnace. They told King Nebuchadnezzar, listen, if I perish, I perish. They weren't looking for a tactic to get out of their situation. Of course they weren't. What they were doing is employing a grand strategy for life, that I will have confidence in the Lord no matter what. And beloved, this is what God is doing for us. This is what David is doing here and what David is calling us to. He's calling us to a grand strategy for living, to put confidence in the Lord. Now, this is not just blind confidence. David has a reason for doing this. And he has a reason for putting his confidence in the Lord. And it's found in verse number one. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Notice these three things, the fact that God is my light, my salvation, and my stronghold. And notice how those three things inspire confidence in us. And notice also the dual action nature of these three things. 
Notice what, what, what they do, not only to the enemy, but to us. First of all, let's take the first one. When David says, the Lord is my light, what does that do for David's problems? What does light do? Well, it dispels darkness. And so David is saying that because the Lord is my life, he will deal with the evil. He'll dispel the darkness. But what does light do to us specifically? Well, light helps us to grow, helps us to see. It gives us strength and energy. The light, the light that happens or the light that David is talking about here is the same imagery of what light does to plants and vegetables. It helps them to grow exponentially. Recently, I, I was looking at an article about Alaska fairs and how they grow freakishly large vegetables. And the reason why they grow these freakish, freakishly large vegetables is a phenomenon known as midnight sun. They have um, sun for 20 hours. And the longer that the, the vegetables are out in the light, it's the bigger they grow. Well, the same thing is true for us. When David is saying, the Lord is my light, he's saying that, look, you and I grow through struggles. You and I grow through temptation. You and I grow through these times in our lives when things are bad. But light also dispels the darkness. Secondly, notice he says that the Lord is my salvation. That the imagery of salvation, there is a shield. And what does a shield do? Well, a shield absorbs the attack of the enemy. But it also protects us from harm. Notice the third one. He says, the Lord is my stronghold. A stronghold keeps the enemy away, but the stronghold also provides a place of rest. And so for David, God is his confidence because of not only what he is capable of doing to the enemy, but what he's capable of doing for us. Notice with me the second, the second thing that helps us to get gospel confidence and also be able to maintain it. And it's this, the problems are real, but not as real as you think. The problems are real, but not as real as you think. Notice the occasion here of the psalm. And it's all about David being under distress. He talks over and over about evildoers and adversaries and those that are camp uh, as an army encamp against him. David's situation here is that of someone being in suffering and tribulation and trials. And yet David is expressing confidence in God because he knows that even though his situation is difficult and the problems are real, it's not as real as David thinks. I remember as a uh, young man, I was walking with one of my friends one day, and we, we were walking past a house, and all of a sudden we heard a dog barking. And to our surprise, a Rottweiler uh, comes out of the back. Everybody knows what a Rottweiler is, right? That's not a weird-looking breed. But it's, you know, it's a big, savage dog. That's, that's all you need to know about the nature of a Rottweiler. And immediately, we see this Rottweiler, and we take off running, right? And you know the great adage, it doesn't matter how fast you run as long as you outrun the person that you're with. And so that's why I tripped him. Um, I'm just joking. I did, I did not. I did not trip him. Now, I thought about tripping him. I thought about tripping him, but I did not trip him. I did not trip him. But, but he was faster than me, right? And I'm like all out running, and this guy is like way ahead. And I thought, surely we're going to get eaten, right? And as I was running, I was just terrified because this big dog is heading our way, and surely he's going he's gonna to eat us up. And, and right as, as the dog was coming and we were trying to run, the dog just stood up and looked at us. 
And, and, and we're like, what the? You know, as we're running back and looking back. We're like, what's going on here, right? The dog just stood up and looked. And we stopped, and my friend started laughing. And I'm like, dude, what are you laughing about? He said that the, the dog has on a, the, this collar, and, and, and to this day, like, I hadn't seen it up to this point, but the dog had on a shock collar, and there was an invisible fence. But I didn't know what an invisible fence was. I'd never seen it, but he had. And so he started laughing. He's like, it's no big deal. The dog's not going to come with us because he was in this invisible fence. Well, he, here's, a, here's the deal. The problems that you have in your life are like that dog, right? You see it. It's real. You react to it. it the problems are real. Listen, I'm not trying to diminish the problems in your life. They're real, and we react to it. But it's not as real as you think. It's like there's a, there's a shock collar on our problems and they could only overcome us or only come so close to us. But they will not consume us. And beloved, you know, it's hard to get to that place in life where we realize that even though our problems are real, they're not as real as you think. But David realizes this. David understands that his problems will not overcome him. Notice what he says. He says that even though the enemy is trying to get him, the evildoers, they're trying to eat his flesh, and, and these adversaries and foes are coming up against him, he says that ultimately he knows that they will stumble and they will fall. And David says even though that his enemies try to attack him, he knows that the Lord will lift up his head. That's in verse number 6. In verse number 11, his enemies are going down crooked paths, but the Lord will keep him on a level path. And David knows in verse number 12 that the Lord will not ultimately give him up to his enemies. Beloved, this is what happens when we have faith and confidence in God. We know that even though our problems are real, they're not as real as we think they are. In other words, they're not going to overcome us or overtake us in the manner in which we think they will. Now, what happens when you and I realize that the problems are real, but not as real as we think? Well, well there's a lot of things that happen. First of all, you stop fixating on your problems. How many of us are going through a trial or testing and tribulation right now, and that's all we can think about? It happens. That's just the nature of, of life. That's the nature of our sinful condition. We don't know how to stop fixating on the things that overcome us. But notice, David is not doing that. David is saying, Lord, you are my light and my salvation. I'll put my confidence in you independent of the experience. Notice what else happened. Fear goes away. Fear goes away. You know, I'm talking to a friend now who's going through a midst of a very difficult time. And you can hear the fear in his voice. And listen, I, I don't pretend to think that just by, by you reading Psalm 27 or, or you um, trusting and having confidence of God, you don't feel that fear. But the Bible, according to the, to the word of Scripture, when we recognize that God will only allow these problems to come so far and not overtake us, there's an, there's an aspect in which fear will not overcome you. It cannot overcome you. Notice David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Why should you be afraid? 
But not only that, David says, you experience confidence, joy, and singing. That's what he says in verse number three. Despite the fact that enemies encamp around me, yet will I be confident. In verse number, uh, in verse number six, he talks about singing melody to the Lord and shouts of joy to the Lord, even though his enemies are all around me. This is what we have in Christ. And beloved, this is what it means to have confidence in the Lord, the steadfastness. Now notice the third one, and it's this. Learn to replace a strong desire with a stronger desire. We talked about this already, but I have to reiterate this. You know, fear is a strong desire. It's, it's a, it, when, when we experience troubles and, and, and things happen in our lives, there's a strong desire for us to fear to worry, to panic, to feel anxiety. There's a strong desire for us to give up. But David doesn't do that. Notice what David says in verse number four. He says, One thing have I asked for the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and inquire in his temple. David's replaces the desire to fear and the desire to panic and the desire to give up with a stronger desire, and that is for the Lord and to be in the house of the Lord. That's what David is doing. Recently, Theresa and I started a cleanse. I think most of you know that. We've, we've kind of made that known. And, um, you know, next to, uh, next to trying to take care of a family, this is probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, you know, uh, yesterday, Teresa was out, and, and she picked up some Chick-fil-A for the kids. I'm like, what are you doing? You're, like, working against us, you know? And so, so we, you know, it, it's a policy in our home that we always eat meals together. And so I'm like, oh, good night, you know? So my kids are sitting down, and they have Chick-fil-A grease and Chick-fil-A sauce all over their mouth, and they're chomping down a Chick-fil-A. And, like, I'm eating beans and rice and curried vegetables, like curried eggplants, you know? And I'm sitting there, and it's all I can do not to, like, reach over and snatch a fry, okay? And in the midst of this, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, man, I really want this Chick-fil-A. It smells good. It's like wafting through the house. My children are just chomping down on this Chick-fil-A. And, but, but in that moment, I realized that my desire to maintain this cleanse my desire to be in a place where I'm healthy, a desire that I have to be in a place of where um, I feel good and, and regain some, some level of, of cognitive ability because I'm not tired all the time and all this. All, my, my desire for those things outweighed my desire for delicious chicken and fries. It's not that the desire wasn't there. I still had it, you know? Me and Crosby, you know, we were staring at those chicken like it was nobody's business. But the point is, my desire to, be, uh, to pursue this cleanse all the way through outweighed my desire to eat the Chick-fil-A. And the same thing is true in your life, right? When it comes to the testing and trials and tribulations. Notice, it, you know, to my knowledge, now to, to, to my knowledge, it is the case that David was in real danger when he wrote Psalm 27. He was in real danger. This isn't just... David in retrospect here. He was in the midst of all of this troubles. And of course, David felt fear. Of course, he felt tribulation. But the point that I'm trying to make and the point that I want you to make is this. Whenever you get to that place in life, 
you, you can't just do away with that fear. You can't just do away with it. You can't just say, well, Lord, take this fear away. No, 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 no. There has to be something that comes in and replaces that fear. And the thing that comes in and, and, refla- and replacing that desire to fear, that desire to give up, that desire towards anxiety, the Bible says is to seek after the Lord. Now, how do we seek after the Lord? Well, David tells us here. Notice with me in verse number four. David says that we ought to dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's what it means to seek after the Lord and replace uh, one desire, the stronger desire for another desire. That's what David is trying to say. Now, what does it mean? What, how do we embody these things? Well, the greatest example of this is Anna the prophetess in Luke 2. Now, as, you know, as Reformed folk, we get kind of nervous when you start talking about a woman being a prophetess, Right? But that's what the Bible says. She was a prophetess. Okay? I'm not going to run from that. That's what Scripture says. But the essence of her prophecy, as we'll see at another time, is that she was in the temple talking about the things of the Lord and proclaiming the things of the Lord. And that's, from a biblical perspective, that's permissible. Right? She was proclaiming uh, things about the Lord in the temple. But the Bible tells us that Anna, the prophetess in Luke 2, she embodied what it meant to gaze upon the Lord, to dwell in his his tabernacle, and to inquire in his temple. And the Bible tells us why. It's because, you know, when she was married, and for seven years she was married, and then after that her husband died, and she spent the rest of her time where? In the temple ministering to the Lord, being consumed by the things of the Lord. Now, notice the Bible says that Anna did not uh, seek a new husband or children or social status or wealth. She sought to be with the Lord. She had an all-consuming desire to minister to the Lord, and because of that, she got to see the Christ child. And in the same way, in the same way, the Bible is calling us to have the singular focus in which we are in the temple of the Lord, where we seek after the Lord, the inquire in his temple, and it's an all-consuming reality. For the sake of time, I'll jump to the fourth one, and here it is. Waiting on the Lord is the secret to building confidence in the Lord. Building conf- waiting on the Lord is the secret to having and building confidence in the Lord. Hands up if you like to wait. Didn't think so. Nobody likes to wait. You know, every now and then you get a kid throw up their hands because they didn't understand the question. But, but, but by and large, there's no one in this auditorium today that likes to wait. None of us do it. And none of us do it for fun. Nobody goes on a hunt looking for a line to stand on so they could just wait, right? Waiting is completely against our nature. And yet God says, listen, we ought to wait upon him. But hear me today, waiting under normal circumstances is always connected to a reward or relief. In other words, for God's people, when we wait, we know that there's some sort of reward or relief at the end of that. And so to wait on the Lord means to patiently submit to God's sovereign timing. To patiently wait on God's sovereign timing. And that's hard. That's very, very difficult for God's people to do. Especially like David, if we're in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this testing and this tribulation. It seems to me that um, 
in this season in my life, the Lord has given me several friends that, um, that are in the midst of great trials and testing and tribulations. And I find myself like a broken record saying the same thing to each and every one of them. Like, brother, we have to wait on the Lord. We have to trust in the Lord. And recently I was um, going through, uh, for my private devotions, I was, uh, you know, I sing a hymn. I normally, you know, read the Bible and, and sing a hymn and pray and, and study the Word of God. And in the midst of a hymn that I was uh, reading, I read, How Firm a Foundation. And verse number four of How Firm a Foundation struck me because it explains perfectly what it means to wait on the Lord. And I close with this. Here's what the writer says. And by the way, I was surprised to find out that nobody knows who actually wrote this. The, the hymn writer's name is Kay. I don't know what that means, but, but here's what the hymn writer says. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy goal to refine. I cannot think of a better expression of what it means to wait for the Lord. That even though we are going through fiery trials, there's a pathway that still lies. And that God's grace is all-sufficient and shall be our ultimate supply. And notice, notice again, it fits so perfectly with Psalm 27. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only desire thy dross to consume, and our goal to refine. Beloved, we can have confidence in God because we know that this portion of um, the, uh, how firm a foundation is true, that no matter what we go through as a people, God is designing it specifically to bring forth gold. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed it is true <coughs> that this psalm, the psalm of confidence, is designed for your people to put our complete confidence and trust in the Lord. And Father, that is difficult, especially in these times when your people are especially heartbroken, your people are especially down. It seems like the joy of our salvation has been sapped from us. It seems like those that we love and we care about who are not saved are not coming into the fold. When it seems like all manner of evil and wickedness are threatening to tear our society apart. Father, it's so difficult to believe that the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation and so difficult for us to have that confidence in you and yet you call us to. Please let it be so, Lord, not by might, not by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we end in prayer.